0: The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. So says Frank Herbert. Welcome to Literary Guy's first remote episode. We are here in the hometown of Frank Herbert, Tacoma, Washington. I'm here, as always, with Dr. Gordon McCallan, but we are not in the Stardust Lounge this time around. No, we are at the Lobster Shop. Yes, we are. A classic cocktail place, The Lobster Shop.
1: I wouldn't quite call it a classic cocktail place. I would call it a classic Tacoma restaurant.
0: Yeah. Frank Herbert was born in 1920 in Tacoma, Washington. It was all farmland back then, so we didn't even have an original house of Frank Herbert's to see. But with Dune hitting theaters, the the marvelous Denis Villeneuve, his take on on the the sci-fi masterpiece that is Dune, Both Dr. McCallum and I are big Frank Herbert fans, so we just wanted to come down here, see what it was all about, and review some Tacoma cocktails. How would you describe Tacoma as a city?
1: Well, I think Tacoma, it reminds me of, well, where we grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Yeah. It's a blue-collar town. Very much so. It has certainly had some gentrification, particularly in the Waterfront District, but end of the day this is a town full of folks who are working hard there there's a very large port here it is a industrial location and it's got great people like i really
0: like the people here and cocktails are
1: not as good as the people
0: Uh, We are right now sitting outside under a heat lamp. We're overlooking the Puget Sound. The sun is just setting right now. It it is a very bucolic setting. We can see some of the islands of the Puget Sound. And actually just across from us, immediately Mm -hmm. across from us, is Point Defiance. You can look it up on a map. It's a large park, I think maybe even bigger than Central Park. It's got a zoo, an aquarium, miles and miles of hiking trails. But specifically, we are looking at a sliver of land that is the Frank Herbert Walking Trail and that peninsula has been renamed the dune peninsula so very appropriate for our frank herbert excursion and hopefully i think we'll talk a little bit about dune we've both read it before we haven't seen the movie i haven't seen the movie mm-hmm. have you you haven't seen uh, the movie i have
1: not seen the movie i've seen the the david lynch Sure. Adaptation. I've also seen the Sci-Fi Channel
0: version, which oh, is right. quite
1: good as well. I, I mean, it, it, the production values aren't fantastic, but it has very redeeming qualities as well.
0: I can't believe there is a movie with Timothy
1: Chalamet that you did not race to theaters to see. That were extenuating circumstances. Okay. I will be watching it very soon.
0: But we're, we're you know we're just here to kind of talk about Tacoma as a town, tell you a little bit about the cocktail scene here. And then talk a little bit about Frank Herbert and our love for the novel Dune. It's a pretty casual episode.
1: Yeah, let's start with the book. Yeah. Because the thing about Dune is it's a very deceptive novel. Mm. You think that this book, which has become popular, is going to have like some really driving central narrative or something which is surprising or shocking. And actually, when you get into it, is it's a book about politics. It's a book about politics on a... As Mafian scale mm-hmm. Like it's all taking Place over hundreds and thousands Of years and we get this Glimpse of The Atreides family and the Harkonnen or Harkonnen depending on Which version you believe is the Correct pronunciation and their Conflict over Arrakis But what Frank Herbert does so Well is he makes you believe That what you're reading about is Just A tiny slice Mm -hmm. of this much bigger political narrative that very few writers have been able to achieve. And the fact that he does it in a sci-fi context with this whole idea of the Spice Guild and the Bene Gesserit and all of the topics and multi-generational thousands of years type issues that they're digging into... Like I think Frank Herbert is a genius for doing that. I have not read the other books beyond. Oh, Dune. okay. I don't know. Have you? Dug I tried into to it? read
0: the second book uh, again. I I first read Dune when I was a adolescent, which I is, think
1: is that Children of Dune. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and I've always heard from friends that you just got to get through the second book because then the third book is amazing. You know, for me, I I agree with what you're saying. I think Frank Herbert did some really impressive stuff almost in like a Tolkien sense, right? Where he created this world, but he doesn't belabor it. He doesn't give you all this backstory up front. You just kind of have to play catch up as the reader. And I remember really being intrigued by that as a kid. But it's interesting that you're kind of reflecting on, I think, what the book is known for, which is its kind of political intrigue that it creates in this fictional world. I just remember as a teenager, maybe I was 13 when I read it, really being drawn to Paul as a character. Mm-hmm. and seeing his journey and his ascension as kind of an allegory for growing up, becoming a man. And that's really what I related to the most as a kid. All the political stuff kind of seemed like window dressing. I now, having read it as an adult, know that it isn't. But for me, at the time I read it, I was just like, hey, here's a character I can relate to. Here's a teenage boy who's really accomplishing and destined to accomplish great things. And I think that's how everybody wants to feel when they're going through adolescence. I was just drawn to Kyle McLaughlin. Again, you're referring to the David Lynch
1: version of Dune. Which, in my mind, is the canonical version. Also, for our listeners, that if you haven't seen it, Jodorowsky's Dune is a fantastic film. And just go out and see it. Like, it'll blow your mind.
0: I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to have to say Denis Villeneuve's probably going to be the better of the three. Simply because uh, he did justice to Blade Runner when I thought no other director ever could.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that's interesting about Paul Atreides is he's not a typical masculine character hmm. that we mm-hmm. find. And I'm kind of curious what you think about that.
0: No, you're right. It's especially interesting given when this book was written by Frank Herbert, uh, or at least published in 1965. I really find Paul to be this very introspective character. mm mm-hmm. um, a lot of the masculine archetypes that we saw coming out in the middle of the century were these self-possessed men who knew their destinies and understood what was asked of them. And they were giving it up for God and country or they were, you know, on a on a personal mission. And I just feel like, I mean, one of the reasons I related to Paul so much as a kid maybe is... Paul's a little bit lost in adrift in this bigger world that he is being thrust into and being asked to play such an important role in. And I thought that that was a really interesting choice for the protagonist of a novel.
1: Well, certainly his father is this incredibly overbearing individual mm-hmm. with all of this gravitas of a space society, essentially, in his realm. And you got to imagine, like, there's no way for an adolescent to be able to somehow step into that role that he just somehow was born into it's very interesting to look at from that perspective we don't see a whole lot of that in Mm sci-fi
0: and i remember uh i think it's at the very beginning of the novel there is this moment where paul is being tested yeah his mother is asked essentially to not give him any information about what the test is knowing full well that the result of the test if he fails could be death it would be death yeah and We're in Paul's mind in that moment, and I remember there being a sense of fragility there, even though he's wildly successful at the test and, in fact, impresses the matriarch of that test with his courage and his resilience, his tolerance to the pain that they put him through but i i also that remember the doubt that he was experiencing and you know it wasn't this fearless character undaunted by the challenges in front of him it was a child a teenager who was terrified of what he was being asked to do and mm-hmm. completely adrift in this larger political scheme that he was being asked to take part in, but at the same time found this inner strength, even in the moment, mm-hmm. to kind of press forward and continue. And to me, that's such so much more relatable as a masculine character than, to use a recent example, Joe Leland from Nothing Lasts Forever, mm-hmm. who seems to have never had any other thought other than you know, what's best for him and how he can casually sexually assault or defile corpses. So we're leaving it. It made it sound like he sexually assaults corpses and nothing lasts forever. But you know what? You're not going to read the book. So let's say he does. Paul is just such a relatable character to me because I think the impressive thing about men accomplishing amazing things is men who feel fear and feel fear deeply and have deep emotions And are deeply unsure of themselves, but push through regardless. And to me, that is kind of the narrative thrust of the protagonist of Paul Atreides that that really, to me, attracted me to Dune so much in the first place. And
1: I think that really helps us fulfill the mission we set out for with literary guys when we started this, which was how do we end up having a discussion comparing Joe Leland to Paul Atreides? So congratulations. (laughs) Mission accomplished. How is Paul Atreides like Macbeth? Ooh, I think the biggest similarity would just be the amount of palace intrigue Like we have this whole thing with what is and is not going on inside of the palace on Arrakis And it does feel a little Macbeth in that concept I don't think Paul is like Macbeth the character I think Dune is perhaps borrowing some ideas and conventions from Macbeth the play
0: Uh, What do you think about the role that men play in Dune, the novel? It's kind of a unique take for something so mid-century. Yeah, I'm happy you brought that up because we've
1: got this character, Paul Atreides, who by his very birth caused this whole scandal amongst the Bene Gesserit, who Paul's mother had said that she would not bear a male child, but... Paul was male, and the fact that he ended up being the Quitsat Haderach, or at least we're told that he is, it's very weird. Like, if he is or if he isn't, sure, sure. And and I love that about the whole religious nature of the book and how it plays with the characters and all that. But there's this huge drama, like they were setting up a woman to be in this role of essentially the Messiah mm-hmm. of many different nations, of many different planets. And Paul, who ended up ultimately fulfilling the prophecy as it was stated, was against the wishes of this entirely all-women enclave of the Bene Gesserit. So I don't know if he's trying to say anything with this, but I think it's something that I've never seen in another book or another film with this very powerful matriarchy that sits behind the mm-hmm. society that is the spice guild that is the emperor that is the big families like they marry into it they have the offspring it's a fascinating dynamic and really when i
0: think about that i think about tacoma tacoma was built on the spice trade this is true no it's really it's kind of a flip between what we see in sci-fi now or at least young adult sci-fi where it is the uh female protagonist who is rising up against the patriarchy, which Mm -hmm. is very of our times and everything. But it's interesting to see that this, that narrative slightly flipped on its head has already been done, Mm -hmm. you know, 60 years ago when Dune was, was being written. One of the things that I thought was interesting in kind of our trip to Tacoma was, you mentioned it earlier, but seeing that blue collar, how truly blue collar the specific Northwest town is. And it made me think about Frank Herbert and the amount of work that went into, I think, five Dune novels that are in his wheelhouse. I know his son ended up Mm -hmm. continuing the series, but the work that went into this world building and the research, because he's pulling from a lot of very real-world analogs as he's creating the world of, Mm -hmm. of Dune and Arrakis. And so for me, it really kind of Lends an interesting perspective into the writing process. You know, this guy was born on a farm in Tacoma. Tacoma is a big shipping town once the railroads got here. You know, did that blue-collar work ethic somehow infuse itself in his writing style and his writing acumen? It certainly seems to be a plausible theory. Here is an author
1: who really put out some unmatched works. Yeah. I think sci-fi authors, even to this day, are still trying to hit onto that magical formula and he did it in a way that when you read the books and you think about them and you contemplate what's there, you're like, oh yeah, he totally put in the work. But at the same time, it's just a damn good story. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like. You shouldn't have to be impressed by the work ethic, but when you think about it and you realize it was there, it does make it that much more impressive.
0: So, as we've kind of taken this tour of Tacoma, uh, because we promised our listeners that we'd give them a little bit of slice of the cocktail scene of various cities around America as we Mm -hmm. continue this part of Literary Guy's oeuvre, Uh, what's your take on Tacoma cocktails? Well, I
1: think it's improving. I passed through Tacoma not more than a couple years ago, and I think that the cocktail scene was weak. It was a good Mm -hmm. way of putting Mm -hmm. it. But I mean, let's be honest, I'm totally spoiled. I spend time in Seattle. I travel to other big cities that have great cocktail bars. I have a high standard. But I think what we're seeing here today is something which is Tacoma cocktails are starting to get their act together.
0: Yeah, and it it really is neat to be here in Tacoma because you kind of get the feeling when you're here of a town that is really taking its destiny to its own hands. Mm-hmm. We've all, we, both you and I now live in Seattle, and Seattleites tend to have a very low opinion of Tacoma. I don't see that here. No, I, I, I don't think I... I opinion. see a town on the rise. I see a town that is being invested in. And I think, you know, there are probably plenty of podcasts where people are going to great cocktail cities around the world. I think it's going to be fun for you and I to go to... The, the birthplaces or the residences of, of great authors and mm-hmm. review that cocktail scene because especially post-pandemic, a lot of these cocktail shops need some press, needs need people to get the word out about them. You could probably tell by the way that we're rambling. This is the tail end of our drinking experience mm-hmm. here in Tacoma. We started at uh, McMenamin's in Tacoma and McMenamin's, for those of you who don't know, is actually a Pacific Northwest chain. How would you describe the philosophy of McMenamin's? Great
1: question. And first off, like the thing that McMinnimans does is it makes you believe that it's not a chain. There is yes, nothing about true. it whatsoever that would make you think that it's a chain.
0: Because there's, be- a, there's a McMinimans up in Seattle, if you want to yes. describe that The Six first. Arms.
1: I spent a few hours there just earlier this week and fantastic location. It is all of the charm and fun of a dive bar without actually being a dive bar. It's actually yeah. a nice place to be and has good cocktails And although I would say the food is a little too salty, the beer selection, because McMinimins is at its heart a microbrewery, that it's one of the best in the city. Mm -hmm. It might be my favorite because there's always something good and new to try. But everything's quirky. Every one of their locations is quirky. And so coming here to Tacoma and seeing McMinimins...
0: I did want to point out there's a McMenamin's just north of the city in Seattle called the Anderson School that is a repurposed high school. So there's a speakeasy that's called the principal's office where you're in the actual former principal's office having a cocktail at like a six-person bar. And there's a pool there and a gymnasium, but they're all themed to the bar. The one down here in Tacoma, to my understanding, is a it's called the Elks Lodge, mm-hmm. and it's a repurposed Elks Lodge. There's, I think, 10 floors, if memory serves. We were there a couple hours ago. The lowest level that we were at was a tiki lounge, and it was delightful. There were running water features, There were thatched huts everywhere. They had the tiki music going and the tiki music vibe. Mm -hmm. And then just a couple floors up from that, you're in a traditional Iris pub. And then one more up from that, you're in a more higher-end craft cocktail bar. So that was a fun kind of experience just to bar crawl, as you will, walking up and down flights of stairs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what McMiniman's does so well. After that, we went to a place called Enrama. Mm-hmm. which is in downtown Tacoma and is actually in a building that Frank Herbert probably would have been to as a child. It's the original post office of Tacoma that, yeah, that has now been repurposed yeah. as a craft cocktail bar. So one of the things that Dr. McCall and I enjoyed was that uh, the little uh, mail slots or safety deposit box slots, I guess they were technically right, right. is how they deliver their cocktails to you. Uh, just a little preview here of their cocktail menu because I took a photo. I want to make sure we give them some some love. One of the things I really enjoyed was their old-fashioned with uh, saffron and cardamom bitters. But I think some of the creativity that they're really known for is their Netflix and chill cocktail, which is overproof rum, brown butter-infused Jamaican rums, grapefruit, housemade ginger beer, cinnamon-infused tequila, grenadine, lime, aromatic bitters, absinthe, and, of course, fire. And now we find ourselves at the lobster shop. Uh, Dr. McCown, what are you drinking right now?
1: Well, I'm currently enjoying a cocktail with the charming name of the Lobster Claw. It's got some Malibu rum, some Myers rum, pineapple juice, and some grenadine. It's actually kind of tiki-esque in its conception, but I feel like sitting here looking out at the Dune Point, is it? Dune Peninsula. Dune Peninsula that I think Frank Herbert would approve of the Lobster Claw.
0: Yeah, and you know, just up the street, there is a lovely seafood restaurant called Duke's where they mm-hmm. have a martini that is just three ounces of One Citron and nothing else. How is that a martini? I don't know, but it's Tacoma and God bless them. This is a working class town. There's a lot of great beer and places to get your whiskey shots. So I, I love that they're trying the cocktail scene. And we could be snobs all we want living up in Seattle, mm-hmm. which, by the way, did kind of reintroduce the craft cocktail scene to America in the 1990s, credit where it's due, some great places, Stardust Lounge, uh, Tid Lizzie, Rob Roy, some amazing cocktail places up in Seattle. Uh, but good for Tacoma. They're giving it a shot. They're giving it a try. I've really enjoyed my time here. It's great to kind of see where Frank Herbert grew up. And I think we've got something here. I think we can go to some other towns in the Pacific Northwest. Hey, maybe even a New York trip if we really want to get some literary history going. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just as, it's a great excuse to get drunk. And talk about books.
1: Is that what we're doing? I think so. I mean, that's what this podcast is about, right? I forget. It's been a we've we've had a lot of cocktails. It's been a long season. <laughs> long season. Now, it's it's all good and it is interesting to think about Dune here. Just Yeah. It's amazing how this book has withstood the test of time. Yeah. That there's a lot of good sci-fi out there. there is. And yet this book which in many ways I feel is a seminal work in sci-fi, has been able to still remain relevant, despite the fact that there are some things about it which aren't as good as I think they were when, when it was written. Like I think one of the things that's challenging for the modern reader is this somewhat distorted view of Islamic culture. Mm. which seems to be sort of bits and pieces that are repurposed in order to form essentially the Fremen culture and, mm-hmm. and also bits of the Bene Gesserit. It just doesn't feel right. Like I don't mm. think these days you could get away with what essentially is religious appropriation in the way in which that
0: book uses it. And you feel like kind of a modern read on it is appropriation and not appreciation. I mean, it's fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know this. I, I don't think Frank Herbert wrote this to make a commentary on Islam. I don't think it's a commentary. Okay. I think
1: that it's just, hey, you know what? The typical sci-fi reader is not aware of any great detail of this religion and of this culture. So I'm just going to use that. And maybe some of the words and the concepts yeah. and it j- just sort of the general ideas that he
0: uses feel almost a little half-informed. Gotcha, and so maybe some things are better left sacred. I think that's a good way of putting it. Gotcha, I, I can't, I, I don't disagree at all. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting reread, it, it, and it is interesting to see that it stood the test of time. I kind of like an, Frank Herbert, who I have amazing respect for, to kind of a Her- Herbert Melville kind of situation mm, where it's interesting. There's so much goodness, and there's so much plumbing the depths of human emotion and the human experience. Uh, But there are also paragraphs and even chapters that it's okay to gloss over.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And I'm not entirely sure that whole chapters couldn't be condensed down to like one sentence. Mm -hmm. I think Frank Herbert's trying to paint a world, which he does very effectively. Yes, But there's also a lot of diving deep into the minds of the character and talking about mm-hmm. what they can see in the future and what they can't. And it, it, at some point, like, he's trying to make a point, but to do so in a somewhat sideways and obtuse nature. And I think if it had just been said out loud what it was he was trying to get across, that it would take,
0: like, one or two sentences. Instead, we have entire chapter. I think it's best to kind of wrap up this episode by really paying homage. Some of that fine prose of Frank Herbert and to quote Paul from the novel. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere.
1: Wait, was that Paul or was that Anakin Skywalker?
0: I stand corrected,
1: but sand does suck. (laughs) I, I think we can agree with him on this core
0: principle. Uh, Anakin and, and Paul in a meta fan verse type scenario would probably, in a, or perhaps slash fiction if they wanted to get together romantically. I don't know. But they're definitely synonymous souls in some respects. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's
1: probably the logical point to wrap things up here for our first visit to
0: another city for literary guys. I think Tacoma was a great choice. If you're ever flying into Seattle, you're flying into SeaTac Airport. The Tac is Tacoma. So you can go a half hour north and be in Seattle. You can go a half hour south and be in Tacoma. And I really would encourage you to give Tacoma a try. It's got some really amazing charm, great, great people with an amazing work ethic and a beautiful blue-collar backbone that really makes us one of America's cities worth championing. I
1: totally agree. I'll be back here soon. But until then, this has been Literary
0: Guys signing off.